Delighted that you're here. We have a good number present, as already been mentioned. We appreciate the presence of everyone, particularly if you're visiting with us. We hope you can come back and be with us again. If you have a Bible with you, if you don't, perhaps there's one in the pew close to you. I encourage you to get it. We're going to be looking at two passages in the Old Testament, starting with Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah 23 and in verse 14. This is in the context, as we will see later, of dealing with the false prophets. There were false prophets in the Old Testament that negated what the true prophets had said, particularly the prophets of doom, that is, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others were prophets of doom in the sense that they were saying, if you continue in your sin, you're going to be destroyed, you're going into captivity. And thus we call them prophets of doom. And there were false prophets who said, none of that's true. And in the context of dealing with that, and we'll come back to the context later, here is what Jeremiah, God says through the word of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 23, 14. And I've seen a horrible thing in the prophets of Jerusalem. They commit adultery, they walk in lies. They also strengthen the hands of evildoers. So that no one turns back from his wickedness. All of them are like uh, Sodom to me and are inhabitants like Gomorrah. I want you to pay particular attention to this phrase that what these prophets were doing, the text says, they strengthened the hands of evildoers. The second passage I want us to take notice of is in Ezekiel 13 and 22. You might put a marker at one place, and if you have two, then put a marker at the other place, because we're going to come back to these two texts a little bit later. In Ezekiel 13, verse 22, same context, different time period, same context though of the false prophets who were saying that what the prophets of doom say is not true. Here is what God said through Ezekiel, because with lies you have made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad, and you have strengthened the hands of the wicked, so that he does not turn from his wicked way to save his life. A little different phrasing, but essentially the same thing, where Jeremiah said, strengthen the hands of the evildoers, here they strengthen the hands of the wicked. Let's talk about that phrase for a moment, of strengthening the hand. What does that mean? When these prophets were said to strengthen the hand of the evildoer, strengthen the hand of the wicked, what does that mean to strengthen their hands? What does that mean? And how is it done? What did they do in order to strengthen the hands? Whatever that means. How is that done? How do you strengthen the hand of anyone? Whether it be the wicked or the righteous. And furthermore, could I be guilty of strengthening the hand of the wicked or the evildoer? How could I do that? And is it always on purpose? Is it that those who strengthen the hand of the wicked always set out with the intent in their mind, I tell you what I want to do, I want to strengthen the hand of the wicked, I want to make sure I do that, and I want to make the heart of the righteous sad. Or is it that I could strengthen the hand of the wicked when that's not my intent? And furthermore, could it be done without that being the intent? Could I be guilty of lending a hand or strengthening a hand of the wicked while I didn't intend to do that at all? I would like for them to be saved, but I've strengthened the hand of the wicked. So with that in mind, let's talk this morning about strengthening the hand of the sinner. Two texts we're looking at, Jeremiah 23. If you don't already have your Bible open, I encourage you to go to Jeremiah 23, put a finger or marker or something there, and then let's go over to Ezekiel 13 as the second passage we're going to be looking at 
Let's talk about strengthening the hand of the sinner. Three things we're going to see this morning. Let's start with this. Number one, let's talk about two passages establish the principle. And these are the two passages, Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 13. There are two passages that establish this principle of strengthening the hand of the wicked. Now let's define some terms before we come to the text themselves. The text uses this phrase, strengthening the hand of the wicked. What's the meaning of that phrase? Well, here's what it means, and then I'm going to give you evidence of that. To strengthen the hand of the wicked simply means that you help, you sustain, you encourage, you give strength to the sinner to continue in sin. And we'll talk in a moment about whether that's your intent or not, or whether that's my intent, or whether that was the teacher's intent. But it means that you help them stay in their sin. You sustain them in their sin. You encourage them in their sin. You give them strength to stay in their sin. That's the idea of strengthening the hand. So let's go to Jeremiah 23. Your translation may read different from mine, where it talks about strengthening the hand of the evildoer. Strengthening the hand of the evildoer. But let's look at some other translation that may enhance our understanding. The New Century Version says that you encourage evil people to keep on doing evil. That's what it means to strengthen the hand of the wicked. You encourage evil people to keep on doing evil things. Here's another translation. The NET says, a little more wooden as you often recognize, to give encouragement to people who are doing evil. Now, again, we'll come back to this a little bit later. That doesn't mean that you're standing off on the side clapping your hands, I'm glad you're doing evil and I wish you'd do more. But you encourage them somehow to continue to do evil. Here's another translation. The Amplified Version says, encourage and strengthen the hand of the evildoers. You encourage and you strengthen their hands to continue doing their evil. <coughs> Let's go to Ezekiel 13 now. And look at some other translations of Ezekiel 13, 22. Here was strengthening the hand of the wicked. Same phrase, but worded just a little bit differently. Here's some other translations of that. The English Standard said, encourage the wicked. That's what these false teachers were doing. They were encouraging the wicked in their wickedness. Here's another translation. The New American Standard, New Century say, encourage the wicked not to stop being wicked. In other words, it may not be worded that way. They may not say, now you're doing wicked and we want you to keep doing wicked and don't ever stop your wickedness. But there's something either said or done that encourages them to stay in their wickedness. Here's another translation. The NIV says, encourage the wicked not to turn from their evil ways. The Amplified Version uses something very similar to Jeremiah, and that is encourage and strengthen the hand of the wicked. Now let's take that word that's translated strengthen. Let's take this word, this Hebrew word, hazak. What does that mean? What does it mean? Well, here's how it's used in other places. Let's go to Isaiah 35. Now, this is interesting because I want to talk about how this is quoted in the New Testament. Let's go to Isaiah 35. Same word that we find in our two texts that talk about strengthening the hand of the wicked. In Isaiah 35, this is going to sound familiar, but it's probably not because of Isaiah 35. It's because of another text that this is going to sound familiar. Isaiah 35, now, and beginning at verse 3, I want you to notice. This is talking about the future under the Messiah and how God would strengthen them. But notice in verse 20, verse 3, rather. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. 
You say, well, that sounds very familiar, but I don't remember studying that just recently from Isaiah 35. This is what's quoted in Hebrews 12, 12. That's where you became familiar with that. In Paul, in talking about people who are discouraged, their hands are hanging down, their knees are getting feeble. It's like they're ready to give up their battle and their fight. And so their hands are hanging down, their knees are getting feeble. And so lift up the hands, strengthen the hands, and straighten your feeble knees. In other words, be encouraged and go on. That's the point. That word translated strengthen here is the same word as strengthening the hand of the wicked. But here's talking about strengthening the hand of the righteous. Same word, same concept, but we're not through. Still trying to define Hazak. In so 2 Samuel chapter 12 and or 10 and in verse 12, that same word is translated, let us be strong. So if you strengthen the hand of the wicked, you're helping them be strong in what they're doing, which is that of wickedness. That same word now is translated encourage, Deuteronomy 3.28. Same word is, incur, is translated in Job 8 and in verse 20 of upholding the evildoer. That point, this is Bildad speaking, by the way. Bildad said God does not uphold the hand of the evildoer. In other words, God doesn't encourage the evildoer. God doesn't say or do anything to help them stay in their evil, continue their evil. God doesn't do that. God doesn't uphold the hand of the evildoer. In other words, God doesn't strengthen the hand of the wicked. God doesn't do that. Now that gives me some insight to the phrase and what it means. Same concept here as in Ezekiel chapter 13 and in verse 22. Leviticus translates that in 25 and 35 as help. I'm beginning to get the idea of what's involved in strengthening the hand of the wicked. Second Chronicles 28 and in verse 20 says, uses the same word, translates it assist. If I'm assisting somebody, then I am, uh, I am helping them, I am encouraging them, I'm strengthening their hand. That is the idea. Now let's go to our text in Jeremiah 23. If you don't already have your Bible open, let's go to Jeremiah 23. And let's look at the context of this passage where these false teachers, these false prophets were said, according to verse 14, to strengthen the hand of the evildoer. Let's set again the context. This is in the context of woe to the false teachers who lead astray. Look at verse 9. Let's get the context. Verse 9. My heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man because, he said, and like a man whose wine is overcome because of the Lord. He's talking about false prophets. Drop down to verse 13, just before our text. I have seen folly in the prophets of Samaria. They prophesied by Baal. They caused my people Israel to err. So here were these false prophets going and telling people things that were not true. And they strengthen the hand, verse 14, of the evildoer. Now let's notice verse 14. Let's get the context. It's going to enhance our understanding of this phrase. Look at verse 14. Having said, they strengthen the hand of the evildoer. Are you reading with me at the end of verse 14? So that no one turns back from his wickedness. In other words, here's a consequence of strengthening the hand of the wicked is that the wicked do not turn back. So something is said, something is done, so that the wicked are not encouraged to come back from their sin. You may not have wanted them to continue in that sin, but something was said or done so that they did not turn back from their sin. Notice that at verse 14? Let's go further. Let's look again at verse 16. Here's what these prophets do. They speak of their own mind and not from the Lord. Look at verse 16. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision from their own heart and not the mouth of the Lord. What are the prophets doing? They're saying things that come from their own wisdom. They're saying things that come from their own mind. They're saying things that come from their own understanding rather than the revelation of God. So something is being said from their own mind so as to cause people who are wicked not to turn from their wickedness. Therefore, they're strengthening the hand of the wicked. Now look at verse 17. Here's another characteristic. Verse 17. Verse 17. They say things like, all is well and don't listen to the prophets of doom. Look at verse 17. They continually say to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you shall have peace. And to everyone who walks according to his own heart, no evil shall come upon you. You see, Isaiah was saying, you continue on in sin, you're going into captivity. These prophets of doom say, you know, that's overstated. That's, that's, <laughs> that's a bunch of, uh, that, that, that's just a bunch of overstatement stuff. Don't, don't listen to all of that like Isaiah or Jeremiah. Don't listen to all that. Don't listen to when Jeremiah says you're going into captivity. That, that's all wrong. Everything is well. Everything is okay. Nothing is wrong. There's no problem with what you're doing. And furthermore, I want you to notice at verse 17, by them saying that, they're saying, do not listen to the prophets of doom. Don't listen to Jeremiah. He, he, he gets a little... He gets a little overboard on this thing about going into captivity. Don't, don't listen to that, Jeremiah. Don't listen to Micah. Don't listen to Amos. Don't listen to any of those prophets. Because they've overstated the case. They overdo that. So don't listen to the prophets of doom. We'll come back to that a little bit later. Now look at verse 22. Here's a contrast with what should have been done. Here's what should have been done. Look at Jeremiah 23, verse 22 now. But if they had stood in my counsel and caused my people to hear my word, they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. If these prophets had done what they're supposed to, they'd have gone to the people and told them the word of the Lord, told them they were wrong, and they may have turned from their ways, but they didn't do that. Rather, they said or did something to encourage them to stay in their sin. What did they do? Well, they made things out of their own mind rather than the revelation of God and told them everything's okay. Don't listen to the prophets of doom. Let's go to Ezekiel now. See if we see anything in Ezekiel that may help us to understand. It set this principle. Remember, two passages set the principle. Here's the second. Ezekiel 13, 22. The context is the same. It's the context of woe to the false prophets. If you're reading from, as many of you do, in the New King James, you'll look at the heading. As you begin chapter 13, it'll say something about woe about false prophets. That's what this is about. They were correct this time. This is a woe to false prophets. Now look at verse 2 and in verse 6. Here's what these prophets do, which were the same kind of prophets as we had in the book of Jeremiah. They speak out of their own mind and out of their own heart and not the word of the Lord. Look at verse 2. Ezekiel 13, now and in verse 2. Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy and say, those who prophesy out of their own heart, hear the word of the Lord. Now this is different this time because we saw a little insight at verse 2. We'll come to verse 6 in a moment. But these prophets are taking things from their own mind, their own wisdom, their own understanding, and they're telling people this is the revelation of God. This is right. This is the right thing to do. But where did they get it? They got it from their own wisdom, not from the revelation of God. They got it from their own mind and own wisdom, but they're telling people this is what God wants you to do. Now look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. Ezekiel 13. They have envisioned futility and false divination, saying, thus says the Lord, but the Lord has not sent them Yet they hope the word may be confirmed. 
They're saying, listen to this. Let's read that again. Look at verse 6. Yet they hope the word may be confirmed. They're saying what they want to be true rather than what is true. That's an important point. These are prophets of doom. That is, they are refuting prophets of doom is what I'm trying to say. And what they're saying is, here's what is the truth of God because it came from their own mind. But actually what they're saying is what they hope to be true, not what is true. And they're encouraging the hand of the wicked by so doing. Let's go again. Look at verse 11. They give false hope. They give false hope. You see, say to those who plaster with untempered mortar that it will fall. And the flood and the rain and the great hail storm shall fall and the stormy wind shall tear it down. They're building with untempered mortar. They're saying things that are not true, not according to the will of God. And consequently, when the rain and the storm and the floods come, it's going to tear down their house. They're building with untempered mortar. In other words, what they're doing is giving a false hope to people, telling them all is well, everything's okay. Don't you worry about what you're doing. It's okay. And their building's going to fall is what's going to happen. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, these prophets say, look at verse 16. That is, the prophets of Israel who prophesy concerning Jerusalem who see visions of peace for her when there is no peace. Jeremiah had said, you're, on, you're, you're headed for destruction. And these prophets said, oh no, oh no. It's okay. It's all, all is well. We're not headed toward destruction. Everything's okay. Peace. Everything's peaceful. All is quiet in the world. And that wasn't the case. That was what was going on. Now verse 22. The consequence was, the consequence of that kind of strengthening the hand of the wicked, now notice at the end of verse 22, so that he does not turn from his wickedness, from his wicked way to save his life. That's what happens. Now, here's what I just learned. Here's the principle. Remember, two passages established the principle. What principle have we established? Here's the principle. That it's possible to give the sinner strength to continue in sin. It's possible to give the sinner strength to continue in their sin. Now, here's something I want to add to that. That doesn't mean that, has, that I have to be a false teacher. You say, well, that doesn't apply to me because Ezekiel 13, Jeremiah 23 talks about false teachers. I'm not a false teacher. I'm not a teacher at all, in fact. doesn't mean you have to be a false teacher. Nor does it mean you have to participate or even approve of the things to strengthen. I just follow the principles that are found in Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 13. Tell them all is well when all is not well. Tell them what's in my mind when it's not found in the revelation of God. Tell them what I hope to be true even though it's not true. I may be strengthening the hand indeed of the wicked. Now, we've looked at two passages that establish the principle. I want to talk about one concern we should have. Two passages establish the principle one concern we should have. Talk about one concern we should have. Here's the one concern. When it comes to anybody, doesn't matter who we're talking about, the greatest concern we should have for anyone is the salvation of their soul. Now in a crowd of this nature, because of the nature of the people who would assemble on a Sunday morning here, this goes without saying that we all would agree, if this were a Bible class, and I ask, if you agree with this principle, everyone would just nod your head, oh yeah, I agree with this principle. But let's drive home this principle that the greatest concern should be for the salvation of soul because Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and, gain, and, and lose his own soul? In other words, your soul, the spiritual part of man that lives on for eternity and that never dies, though your body dies, the part that lives on for eternity is worth more than the whole world. 
What if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul, Jesus said. Look at Matthew 10 and in verse 28. It's more important than your physical well-being. We give great concern for our physical well-being. If you acted a little bit ill, we'd all rush to your side and say, what can I do to help you? What can I do to kind of get you to the doctor? Can I get you some... What can I do to help your, your physical well-being? Well, Jesus said, don't fear him that is able to destroy the body, but him that is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't fear a man killing you, but worrying about... You need to be concerned about this one thing, and that is losing your soul. And let's add to that this principle. The whole mission of Jesus coming to earth was to save sinners. He came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Paul would tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 and 15. So I'll take those three passages together and I see it's worth more than the whole world. It's, it's more important than my physical well-being. And Jesus came for the sole purpose of saving my soul. Then the greatest concern, the number one concern I should have for anybody is the salvation of their soul. Let's add to that now. I want to suggest to you that the greatest concern for family should be the salvation of their souls. Your husband, your wife. Your parents, your children, your grandchildren. The greatest concern should be for the salvation of their soul. 2 Corinthians 5 and in verse 9. Let's go there. And as you're turning there, let me tell you what the context is. Or remind you, you already know what the context is. This is Paul's self-defense. The book I'm talking about, 2 Corinthians. He's defending himself against attacks of false teachers. And part of what he's doing in chapter 5 is simply addressing this question. What gives you your drive and makes you do what you do? And here's one of the things. Notice verse 9. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. He said, this is my one goal. What's your one goal, Paul? They're whether present or absent, living or dead. Whatever I am and wherever I am and whatever I'm doing, I make it my goal to be well-pleasing to the Lord. I want to please the Lord no matter what. That's my one goal. That's my one concern, he said. That ought to be true concerning your children. That ought to be true concerning your, your parents. That ought to be true concerning your siblings and your mate or whoever is in your family. Your number one concern, I want their soul to be saved. Now let's go a little bit further and notice some other passages that drive that point home. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's talk about the husband and wife relationship. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, he starts on the note of a Christian woman who is married to a non-Christian man. And the text implies for us what her greatest concern about him is. Let's see what it is. Let's start at verse 1. Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, if they don't obey the word, that means he's not a Christian. He hasn't been obedient to the gospel like she has. I don't know she had. This letter is being written to Christians, and it's addressing the wife. That even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. You see, he's giving advice to the woman who's concerned about, my husband is not a Christian, and her number one concern is, I want to do something to save his soul. What can I do? And the advice is, notice it, verse 1, he said there may be one without a word, that is, without her preaching, without her nagging, without her, her constantly nagging at him. But here's how she can reach him. Look at verse 2. Then when they observe the chaste conduct accompanied by fear, 
And they observed, verse 3, the beauty of the inward adorning of the, not the arranging of the hair, the wearing of gold, or putting on a fine apparel, but the hidden person of the heart, the incorruptible ornament of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. When he observes that, he may be one to Christ. But what I'm learning from that, the wife who really loves her husband, she wants more than anything for him to be saved. He may complain he's having chest pains and she's worried about his heart, but she's greater, she has a greater concern for his soul. He says, I'm not feeling well. And she says, you need to go to the doctor because I, I don't want you to, I don't want to lose you. But she has a greater concern if she really loves him for his soul. But we're not through. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. Parents should have that same kind of concern for their children. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Are you concerned about your children's well-being? Sure. They start showing signs of sickness, you rush into the doctor. So on a weekend, let's take, them to, let's take them to urgent care, the emergency room, because we want their physical well-being seen to. When they're failing and lagging in school, we rush to the school to see what could be done that we might get their education set right. But your greatest concern should be the salvation of their soul more than anything else because you're trying to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Look at Luke 16. Siblings who love siblings, the greatest concern is the salvation of their souls. Do you remember the rich man? True story. This is not, a, not just a parable, which implies if you say just a parable, a parable is not true. It's never called a parable, by the way. But here in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, when the rich man died and he talks to Abraham, remember what he said, I have five brethren. In other words, I have five brothers. Send Abraham back that he may testify to them lest they come into this place of torment. In other words, I want more than anything at this moment, the salvation of their souls. That's what I want. I want them to be saved. Now, the one concern we should have is the salvation of our family or anybody else's soul. Now, let's draw a conclusion. If that is the greatest concern, is the salvation of the soul, then why do anything to strengthen their hand in sin? In other words, here's someone in sin. Maybe it's my, maybe it's my child. Maybe it's my son. Maybe it's my daughter. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's my father. Maybe it's my mother. And I see them in sin, and I do anything I say or do or fail to say or do anything that may encourage them to continue in that sin. Why would I do that when my number one concern is the salvation of their soul? Not their feelings. Not their physical well-being. Not their happiness. But I'm concerned more than anything else about the salvation of their soul. Here's the third thing. Let's talk about multiple ways we could be guilty. Two passages set the principle. One concern we should have multiple ways we could be guilty. Guilty of what? Of strengthening the hand of the sinner. How could we do that? Let's go back to our context. Remember the two passages that set the principle? Let's start with those. Let's start with this. First of all, we might give our opinion that's not based upon Scripture. I'm not going to read again Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 6, uh, 13. Uh, that should be chapter 13 instead of chapter 12. But both of those passages said, here's what the prophets did. They spoke of their own mind and not the revelation of God. They gave their own opinion. Things out of their own thinking, out of their own mind. Verse 6 also said, remember this? They said what they hoped would be true, not what they knew to be true. Here's what I'd like to see about Jerusalem. I hope it's not destroyed, so I'm going to tell them it's not going to be destroyed. They were wrong. They were wrong. 
it was destroyed because they didn't speak the truth. So maybe, you see, I'm telling my child, my sibling, my parent, my friend, something from my own thinking that's not found in the revelation of God. I might be strengthening the hand of the sinner. I might be telling them what I hope to be true. You see, I might have a child that goes off into homosexuality and I might change my view and say, you know what, I, I really would like God to approve of that so I may tell them what I hope to be true. Or I may have a child or a sibling maybe that gets in an unscriptural marriage and I tell them, you know, I, I don't see that God would disapprove of that. I'm telling them what's in from my own mind, hoping that God will approve of that. That may not be true. Here's a second way we could be guilty. When we tell family members he or she is okay when maybe they're not okay. I'm not going to read again Jeremiah and Ezekiel 13. Remember what they said? Peace, peace when there is no peace. Jeremiah's over here saying, you're going to doom. And the prophets are saying, oh no, no, it's not that bad. Not that bad. It's all okay. They're saying peace when there is no peace. Safety when there is no safety. So it may be that I'm telling some of my family members, maybe it's my son, maybe it's my daughter, maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's a parent, maybe whoever. Everything's okay. Don't worry about what you're doing. When maybe that's not the case. I'm strengthening the hand of the wicked. Here's something else. When I tell a family member not to listen to the prophets of doom, You know, that's what, exactly what they were saying. Let's go back to Jeremiah. I am going to go back this time to Jeremiah. Let's go back to Jeremiah 23 and in verse 14, or verse 17, I'm sorry. Jeremiah 23, 17. This is in that context where these false prophets were said to strengthen the hand of the wicked. I want you to notice verse 17. They continue to say to those who despise me, the Lord has said you shall have peace. And everyone who walks according to his own imagination, his own heart, no evil shall come upon you. What does that mean, no evil shall come upon you? Jeremiah is wrong. Jeremiah overstated the case. Jeremiah doesn't know what he's talking about. Don't listen to Jeremiah. Don't listen to the prophets of doom. Do you ever do that? You ever leave service when, when there's been maybe kind of a hard line lesson against some form of worldliness? And you tell your children, well, that was overstated. I, I just, I, that, that's just not really the way it is. You're strengthening the hand of the wicked is what you're doing. You're strengthening the hand of the wicked. That's exactly what's going on. Don't listen to that. Don't listen to the prophets of doom. That's how we strengthen the hand of the wicked. Here's something else. Maybe we tell our family or friend, God wants you to be happy. I, I, I know that in your circumstance that you're unhappy. And if you want to remarry and get in a right relationship, it, I know some people say it's adultery, but, but God wants you to be happy, you see. I think God wants you to be happy. Well, who can deny God wants you to be happy? How do you deny that? No, God wants you to be unhappy. So that's one of those axiomatic principles, supposedly, that God wants you to be happy, so whatever makes you happy is what God wants. Can't argue against that. We're strengthening the hand of the wicked. Here's another way. When we enable them, when we enable them, go back to Luke 15 with me, if you will. We've studied this recently in the auditorium class, in the high school class. And this is the story of the prodigal son, the wayward son comes back home. 
Remember, he came back. He came back home. He wasn't just a wayward son, but he came back home. But before he came back home, verse 15 says, or verse 16, I'm sorry. Verse 16 says, no one gave him anything. If you don't have that underlined in your Bible, this would be a good time to do that. No one gave him anything. No one enabled him. In other words, we enable them by giving to them. Suppose you have a family member that is a drunkard, an alcoholic. And they get into trouble. And they spend all of their money on their booze and they're down and they can't make the payment on their car. And about to lose a car and you go make their car payment for them because you feel so sorry for them. You're giving unto them. You're enabling them. They get down on their luck again and they can't make their car payment. And you say, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make your house payment this time. And you may even rebuke them along the way. Now, you shouldn't be drinking. I, I, you, need to get, you need to get some help for that. But what I'm doing is I'm enabling them. Or maybe the child gets in trouble and they get arrested for stealing and you go pay that back and you bail them out. I don't want them to spend any time in jail. I don't want them to pay the consequences. I'm going to take care of that. And you do that time and time again. You're enabling them by giving unto them. When we bail them out by ignoring a life of sin. And we're focused more on the relationship we have. That we have a relationship of, of, of father and son or, or mother and daughter. Or parent and a child. Or a sibling to sibling. We're focused more on the relationship. And so consequently because of that I'm enabling them. Here's something else we do. When we go along with what we know to be wrong. Let me give you two examples of that in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 5 is the first. Do you think, listen to this question, do you really think the church at Corinth, when they were tolerating fornication, that they would have said there's nothing wrong with fornication? I don't think they would have said that. Because Paul doesn't go into great argumentation convincing them fornication is wrong. They knew it to be wrong. But they were tolerating it. They had one of their own members committing fornication where a man had his father's wife. And they're tolerating that. They're going along with what they knew to be wrong. And Paul said that's going to have a little leaven having an influence on the whole lump. In other words, you're strengthening the hand of the wicked. No wonder he's not turning back. Another case? Sec uh, second chapter of Galatians. What's that about? That was when some men came from James and... Peter, who had already taken a strong stand that Gentiles are gospel subjects, withdrew himself and wouldn't associate with the Gentiles. He knew better than that. He knew better. He's just going along. And who else was there? Even Barnabas, the text says, was carried away with the hypocrisy. Barnabas went along with what he knew to be right. How do I know Barnabas knew? Because in Acts chapter 8 of 15, he already knew and had taken his stand. That Gentiles are gospel subject, but he's going along with what he knows to be wrong. I know I shouldn't be a part of this, but I'm going along. I don't want to make waves. Are you going along with things in your family that you believe to be wrong and you know to be wrong, but you're going along with that? You may be strengthening the hand of the wicked. Here's something else. When we protect the loved ones from those who seek to encourage and correct them, this may sting. Listen to me carefully. When, when, when you have a child, for example, and they start taking a wayward bend, and some of the members say, I'd like to talk to them and see if I could encourage them to come back. Or maybe the elders say, I'd like to come and talk with them 
And the next thing you know, the whole family takes flight and they go elsewhere to take the, the child away from the oversight of the elders. And that family then scratches their head later and wonders why haven't, that, why haven't they got any better about their sin? It's because the family was strengthening the hand of the wicked. They're strengthening the hand of the wicked. They're taking them away from those who are trying to care and those who are trying to correct and those who are trying to encourage them to do right. They're trying to strengthen their hand in doing right, but rather they strengthen their hand in doing wrong. This is exactly, this next point is exactly what happened in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23. You can't, you can't read this statement and not think about Jeremiah 23. And that is when we dismiss strict teaching without study and refutation. When somebody comes along and, and has a restriction that God doesn't have, then that ought to be refuted. For example, the church at Antioch had some teachers come in saying you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. That's pretty strict, I'll tell you. But they didn't just dismiss that and say, hey, wait a minute, that, that is not true. They had this big discussion. Remember the big discussion in Acts 15? And they went through command, example, and inference, show, tell, and imply. Remember that? And concluded what the Holy Spirit, verse 28, had said about that. So when they dismissed that, they dismissed it with Bible study and with refutation. Far cry from when somebody hears maybe a sermon on drinking, a sermon on dancing, a sermon on modesty. And they go home into the family, they dismiss that without study and without refutation. We don't believe that. I want to teach you some magic words. If you don't know magic, I want to teach you some magic right here. We don't believe that is a magic formula that dismisses the commands of God. In other words, you hear all the teaching of the scriptures, book, chapter, and verse, and if you don't like it, you just kind of say, we don't believe that. That's magic. It just does away with the commands of God. So all the, all the things about us assembling and, and, and uh, not forsaking the assembly, you go home and you tell your family, we don't believe that. That's magic. It did away with that. You hear lessons on drinking. And if you like drinking or you have drinking in the family, you say, we don't believe that. It's magic. That's how it works. Modesty. You have strict teaching on modesty. You tell your family, we don't believe that. It's magic. It works. And it works with any command. So that when your children come up and they say, you know this thing about Lord's Supper every Sunday? And you say, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute, you're going too far. I, 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 we need to have the Lord's Supper every Sunday. And your child's going to say, don't believe it. It's magic. It works on anything. And when your grandchildren come along and they say, you know what? Grandmama and granddaddy, we don't believe baptism to be essential. And you say, oh, no, no, wait a minute. The scripture says, don't believe it. See, they've learned the magic. You dismiss any part of the scriptures that you want. I want to tell you, when we dismiss strict teaching without studying, without refutation, we're strengthening the hand of the wicked. Let's go to 1 Kings 21. You remember, these are two people that are not, they're notable. I'll start to say they're not notable. They are notable. They're not reputable people. Ahab and Jezebel, wicked Jezebel. And you remember the statement made in chapter 21 that Ahab sold himself to do evil because Jezebel stirred him up. She strengthened the hand of the wicked. What'd she do? 
Well, chapter 21, verses 1 through about verse 7 or 8. She helped Ahab get what he wanted and do what he wanted to do regardless of the wisdom. Remember him wanting Naboth's vineyard? Naboth said, no, 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 I'm not going to sell. He came home and pouted. Remember that verse 4? Wouldn't he? He's pouting. And so she came up with this scheme. I'll help you get whatever you want. If that's what you want, you want Naboth's vineyard, we'll get Naboth's vineyard. And she made up lies and a scheme so that, that she had Naboth killed. And when Naboth's killed, now you go get your vineyard because he's gone. So what she did, she helped him get and do what he wanted regardless of the wisdom. Listen to me carefully. When, when you look at your children or your husband, or your wife, or whoever it may be, and you help them get what they want and help them do what they want to do, regardless of the wisdom, you're strengthening the hand of the wicked. That's what you're doing. When we make excuses for family that's not living as they should. You ever talk to someone who maybe doesn't agree with what the family member is doing? And yet they make excuses. When you say, well, where's, where's so-and-so today? What? Hadn't seen them in a week. Where were they? And, and then the family starts making excuses. Well, they, and so here they go, making excuses. And what they're doing is they're enabling them. I appreciate so much the honesty of family members who, when they have a family member that's not doing right, they just say, well, they're not doing right. They're not here. I don't know why. Or they're not here because they just chose not to be here. When you make excuses for family members, you're enabling them and you're strengthening the hand of the wicked. One last thing, Ephesians 5. When we fail to teach or correct. Ephesians 5 says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Rather than go along, you reprove it. But then my children... That's in my wife, my husband, my whatever. My parents have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. When we fail to teach, and we fail to instruct, and we fail to correct. So maybe it's my children that they don't know that X is wrong. I just strengthened their hand because I didn't teach them it was wrong. And they go off somewhere and place membership in a church where they suddenly hear that something is wrong and then they're startled by that. But you know what? Maybe because I didn't teach. I failed. And I strengthened the hand of the wicked. We've been talking about strengthening the hand of the sinner. Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 13. Two passages establish the principle. One concern we should have. Multiple ways. We could be guilty. May God help us not to strengthen the hand of the wicked. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?